We are wrapping up this uh, Made to Grow series. And tonight we're talking about grace. Um, and I think if, if you only hear one thing tonight, I hope that you hear that without grace, you will never grow. Until you accept God's grace for yourself and extend grace to others, you won't experience deep maturation, deep development or deep growth. God's grace. What do I, what do I mean by grace? God's grace is, is unmerited, his unmerited and unequivocal yes to you. Grace is God's unchangeable and unconditional love for you. Grace is God saying that you are good because of who I made you to be. Grace is God saying, I see your broken and wounded heart and I will make you whole again. Not because of anything that you have done or anything you haven't done, simply because I love you. Without grace, we remain stagnant. Um, unresolved sin in our, in our past, uh, old wounds hold us back and they stunt our growth. And grace and forgiveness and repentance are the only things that can help us heal from those things and begin to grow into the people that God created us to be. Otherwise, we try and try and try to change. And we never seem to be able to actually really truthfully move or mature beyond these same recurring struggles. I'm sure that you can relate to any of what I've just said. If trying really hard to change your behavior, the recurring things that you struggle with, if trying really hard to change those things was a strategy that ever worked, you'd probably have been successful by now. So until you believe that God has already transformed you, you won't grow. That's how important grace is. Given its importance, you'd think that grace would be something that you would hear about a lot. And I hope that if you are part of this community, you feel like it is something you hear about a lot. Um, you, you, you feel like it'd be something that you just automatically pick up on if you spent any time in church. But the truth is, grace is really easy to lose sight of. It's so different from anything that, w that we experience. It's, it's antithetical to most of the human experience. And it easily gets smothered by all sorts of other noise in our life if we let it. So I haven't, I haven't followed Jesus my whole life, but I have always been uh, involved in church um, in some capacity. And I have to tell you in the first 21 years of my life growing up in church, I never heard about grace or at least I didn't hear about grace in a way that stuck with me or made sense to me. I'm sure that I heard about it, but it, it never struck. It never stuck. It never made sense. And when it finally did, when I finally did hear about grace and start to comprehend what it was, it wasn't in church. I didn't hear about grace until sitting in the office of an addiction counselor um, who I was seeing because my life had completely fallen apart. Um, we'll talk about that more in a minute, but uh, to get a picture of the completely nonsensical and life-changing grace that God extends to us, I want us to look at a story that Jesus tells a group of Pharisees who were bothered by him hanging out with uh, tax collectors and sinners, um, the people who uh, the good and right people saw as traitors and failures, the deplorables of Jewish culture. So we're going to be reading a parable from Luke chapter 15, which is a very famous story. You've probably heard it before. It's the prodigal son. 
so this is Luke chapter 15, starting in verse 12. It is not going to be up on the screens. I just want you to listen and not try to read along. Um, so if it helps you, please feel free to close your eyes, whatever you need to do to, to hear this story. There once was a man who had two sons. The younger said to his father, Father, I want right now what's coming to me. So the father divided the property between them. It wasn't long before the younger son had packed his bags and left for a distant country. There, undisciplined and dissipated, he wasted everything he had. After he had gone through all his money, there was a bad famine all through that country, and he began to hurt. He signed on with a citizen there who assigned him to the fields to slop the pigs. He was so hungry, he would have eaten the corn cobs in the pig slop, but no one would give him any. That brought him to his senses. He said, all those farmhands working for my father sit down to three meals a day, and here I am starving to death. I'm going back to my father, and I'll say to him, Father, I've sinned against God. I've sinned against you. I don't deserve to be called your son. Take me on as a hired hand. He got right up and went home to his father. When he was still a long way off, his father saw him. His heart pounding, he ran out, embraced him, and kissed him. The son started his speech, Father, I've sinned against God. I've sinned against you. I don't deserve to be called your son ever again. But the father wasn't listening. He was calling to his servants, Quick, bring a clean set of clothes and dress him. Put my family ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Then get the grain-fed heifer and roast it. We're going to feast. We're going to have a wonderful time. My son is here, given up for dead and now alive given up for lost and now found. And they began to have a wonderful time. All this time, his older son was out in the field. When the day's work was done, he came in. And as he approached the house, he heard the music and dancing. Calling over to one of the houseboys, he asked, what, what's going on? He told him, your brother came home. Your father has ordered a feast because he has him home safe and sound. The older brother stalked off in an angry sulk and refused to join in. His father came out and tried to talk to him, but he wouldn't listen. The son said, look how many years I stayed here serving you, never giving you one moment of grief. But have you ever thrown a party for me and my friends? Then this son of yours who has thrown away your money on whores shows up and you go all out with a feast. His father said, son, you don't understand. You're with me all the time and everything that is mine is yours. But this is a wonderful time and we had to celebrate. This brother of yours was dead and he's alive. He was lost and he's found. I love this story and I come back to it over and over and over again. I see, I see a lot of myself in both of these two sons. Um, and I encourage you to read back over this story this week. And I'm willing to bet that you can see yourself in them as well. Um, I see myself interacting with God in the same way both of these sons did. Um, I see a beautiful picture of God in the character of the father. Um, growing up, this story was always about why it's bad to rebel. Um, it's not, it was not a story about how great God's grace is. Because like I said, grace was not really a part of what I understood growing up. 
Uh, many of you in this room have heard my story. Um, some of you haven't. Either way, I, I'm sharing uh, some of my history tonight with you because I believe that the things that are most personal to us tend to be the things that are, ironically are most universal, the things that we can relate to others with the most powerfully. And I hope that in sharing some of my story that you would be inspired to see how big God is and be encouraged to be honest with your own story. Um, so as I said, I grew up in church and I can't tell you when this idea formed in my head, uh, but sometime before or right around middle school, I came to understand that faith is um, trying really hard to please God. I came to understand that my standing with God and with other people was based on my performance and my behavior and how, how much I avoided sin and how many good things I did. My sense of self-worth and my sense of God's approval of me was tied completely into whether I did the right thing or not, how much I avoided sin. So I tried really hard to be good, to please God. And this worked for me for a long time. Uh, I made God and church my life. I didn't really have friends at school. All of my friends were uh, wrapped up in church. Um, I, uh, I tried to lead as many things as I could in youth group. I, I, would, I learned how to play guitar so that I could lead worship in my youth group. Uh, it was also because I thought that girls would think that that was cool. And uh, uh, it's not that they didn't, but um, yeah. Uh, I had all these badges of honor in faith uh, that I thought were what faith should look like, at least my understanding of it at the time. By all accounts, I was doing everything right. I was also on edge and anxious and stressed and miserable, uh, but on the outside, it looked like everything was going well. So like, like the older son, I was out plowing the fields, doing the work, um, not giving God any trouble, hoping that he would notice what, how good of a job I was doing. It wasn't until my senior year of high school that things started to really fall apart and would continue to deteriorate for the next several years. Um, Around this time, October of 2004, gosh, I feel like this just happened like 10 years ago. And every time I tell this story, I'm, I guess that's how time works. It gets farther and farther away, huh? That's just, it's almost 20 years ago, which feels very weird to just be realizing. Anyway, October 2004, I was in an extremely dysfunctional relationship with a girl in my youth group uh, for two years. And uh, that relationship ended when uh, it was discovered that my mentor who was a guy who was 10 years older than me, who'd been my small group leader since I was in sixth grade, so middle school all through high school, uh, had been having a relationship with the girl that I was supposedly in a relationship with, um, which is really hard to handle at 17. When you're 17 and your 27-year-old mentor is um, doing things that he shouldn't be doing. Uh, I already had trust issues with people in authority based on a few things that happened earlier in my life. And so this cr crushed the already fragile trust I had in people, especially people who claimed to follow Jesus. Uh, I graduated high school and later that summer, um, the 4th of July, one of my good friends died very suddenly and very inexplicably. Uh, he was an Eagle Scout and um, he was on a church backpacking trip, so not a hard one. Um, and he was on his, he was walking back to the vans on their way home and he literally just fell over and died. Uh, to this day, they don't really know what happened to him. He was perfectly healthy. 
Uh, a month later, I moved uh, to Waco, Texas. Don't recommend it. Um, it's changed a lot since I was there, but I, I started going to Baylor, uh, which is a school that's there, which is why I moved there. Um, so that was August. In October, uh, the pastor at the church that I was attending died one Sunday by, <laughs> from I'm not laughing. It feels weird to say, so I laughed. Uh, he died being electrocuted while performing a baptism one Sunday morning. Not funny. So um, at this point in my life, just nothing felt safe. Uh, I was in a new state that I didn't want to be in um, I, with very few friends. I felt like my friends back home were, were betraying me or were dying. Now the pastor of the church that I had attended, who I had just started to get to know, died. And uh, God felt completely absent. And I collapsed. I developed an addiction to pornography. I gained 30 pounds in one month. 30 pounds that I'm still trying to get rid of. Uh, I lost my faith in two months. Um, by February, I had gone through a really messy breakup with a girl that I had been dating long distance. And I was so depressed that at one point I would sleep 20 hours a day because it's the only time that I felt okay. So I would wake up at like four or five in the evening. I would go get dinner with my friends. I would stay up watching something with them till like nine which, you know, you're in college. Who goes to bed at nine? I go to bed at nine now, and that feels weird. So like at 18, going to bed at nine o'clock and waking up the next day at 4 p.m. Um, because my sense of self-worth was so tied up in my performance, I was actually very good at getting good grades, and I still got decent grades somehow, even though I didn't go to class a lot. Uh, but I did get my first C from not going to class ever, which was devastating at the time. You have to understand, like, I was all A's and B's, and if you got a C, that meant that you were not a good person. Anyway, so when the school year ended, I was just a shell of a person. I decided to transfer and move back here, um, and I thought that this would be a fresh start for me. And after months of oscillating with what I thought about God between agnosticism and deism, I decided to, like, give God another try. This time I was really going to do it. I was really going to prove that I was serious about faith. I was going to really prove that I was good. I was really going to get this right. And I, I thought that after all God has done, the least I can do is try to be good, right? But all, all of my problems followed me home. Uh, my addiction went into overdrive. Uh, I started drinking a lot. Uh, I had dysfunctional and very physical relationships with women. Um, and the whole time I just begged God to change me. And it never happened. I would literally scream like, <laughs> you made me this way. So this is your fault. So like, if you don't change me, I clearly can't do it. If you don't change me, you must want me to be this way. Eventually, when nothing changed and just kept getting worse, I came to the conclusion that one of these things must be true. Either everyone that claims to be a Christian feels the same way I do, and they're all just lying about it. Or God didn't exist. Or if he did, he just really didn't like me. And I wasn't sure which of those three options was the worst. So at that point, uh, I tried to just be the younger son from the parable that we read and figured if there's no hope, I might as well live it up um, and just fell further into darkness. 
I didn't have a great time. I didn't enjoy it at all. Life only got worse. So it felt like it didn't matter how much I tried or how much I didn't try. It felt like no matter what, all of my wounds and all my sin, uh, sin that I did and sin done to me, sep- the, the stuff separated me from God. And I've used this analogy before, but it was like we stood on opposite shores of a mile wide lake full of poisonous and toxic sewage water that I could never get across to, to reach him. It was just God and I on opposing beaches. And he just stared at me from the opposite shore with his arms crossed, just shaking his head, just so disappointed in me. Now, I'm not the first person to think this way. Um, this was the same view of God that many Pharisees had at the time that, uh, that Jesus was telling this story of the prodigal son. They only thought, um, they thought that their religiosity and their ability to keep the rules kept them on good terms with God, kept them on the same shore as God. But any minute they could easily slip up and be banished across that toxic lake, separated by how disappointed God was in them. It was all based on trying to make God happy or avoid making him mad by being good, Um, which is part of why this story that Jesus tells them of the prodigal's two sons is so incredible because we have this father, well, we have this, this son who sins against his father and it's an egregious sin. He basically says, I want my inheritance from you before his father has died, which is basically saying, I care more about the money that I get when you die than you. So let's just pretend like you're dead and give me the money so I can leave. We don't have time to go into all of it tonight, but there's a ton of very significant cultural and contextual details in the story that we missed today that makes it a really genius and really powerful story. But basically Jesus describes a son who sins so deeply against his father that uh, his entire and his entire community, not just his father, that basically he deserved to be put to death and anyone in his community had the right to stone him if he ever showed back up in town again. That's how serious what he did was. He squanders his father money on, on hedonistic pursuits and eventually finds himself starving. And it's only when he's facing starvation that he, and famine that he realizes that he's done something wrong, <laughs> that, he's, that he's wronged his father. And he decides to go back home and ask his father to allow him to try to pay him back. That's what he is saying. Like, let me, um, he's not asking to be restored to any place in the family. He literally says, you don't have to ever call me your son again. Let me become an indentured servant to try to pay you back what I've taken from you. And we're told that the father sees the son coming a long way off in the distance, making his way back home. And the father runs out to greet him and gives him a huge hug and a kiss and dresses him and puts jewelry on and shoes on and orders the servants to prepare this huge party for him. And in all these acts that the father, these are all symbolic of the father restoring the son's true identity. And the father completely rejects his son's offer to try to make his wrongs right by earning uh, everything back as, as a, basically a slave. So this father who should be so angry with the son should have at least had some choice words, if not like, you know, at least a couple of punches to throw or stones to hurl. This father who could have let his son be killed by anyone else in the, in the community for what he had done, um, or, or could have at least allowed his son to try to make it right and earn some of what he has lost back. The father doesn't respond this way at all. Instead, he responds with, with joy and with love, with grace with acts that restore the son to his family and his entire community. But then we see this older son 
the good son enraged at the father's response because he has spent his entire life trying to prove himself to his father. He's always followed the rules. He's never made any problems, but despite all these good things that he's done, he's still bitter and angry and not forgiving. And his father responds to him again with love, inviting him to the same party. We have two sons who live in very different ways, but both try to earn their father's love and, and, and instead are both denied the opportunity to earn his love and instead are invited to a party. Both try to prove and earn their worth. And, and the father says, no, you're already good enough. You don't have to earn it. You don't have to prove it. I don't love you for what you do or what you don't do. I love you because of who you are and who you are, are my children. It's not just a cute story. <laughs> this is the way that God interacts with us. He isn't phased by our sin. Yeah, it's there. We sin. Yes, our sins deserve punishment, but that's not how God responds to us. He doesn't ask us to prove ourselves to him before he'll draw near to us. He doesn't ask us to try to make up some of what we've lost before he'll run out to meet us. He has already run out to meet us in the midst of our sin. Before you were and I were ever alive to sin in the first place, God was running out to meet us. So maybe you relate more to the younger son, uh, feebly returning home to beg Jesus just to let you try to make it up. You'll really do it this time. You really mean it this time. Or maybe you're like the older son and you're just out tirelessly working in the fields, trying to earn Jesus's love and approval by just doing the right thing. Chances are you've acted like both sons at some point in your life. And either way, God responds to us patiently, patiently waiting for us to come home and just rest in who he says we are to enjoy him rather than pointlessly strive to earn him to just come inside and party already. He roasted the heifer for goodness sake, quit complaining and just eat some. And if you're not into meat, you know, imagine whatever uh, thing you try to fill the void in your soul with. When we understand God's grace toward us, God's stance toward us. And when we understand what he says about who we are, it changes everything. When we believe our sins separate us from a God who is deeply disappointed with us, we frantically try to please him by striving to meet the demands that we are imagining he has for us and the expectations that we set for ourselves that he doesn't have. We try really hard to make him happy, to do more good and to avoid more bad. But I don't have to tell you this, no matter how hard we try, no matter how many good things we do, no matter how much we pray or read our Bible or show up at church or try to serve people or try to invite people, we never feel like we do enough to counteract our sins. Because the truth is, even when we're trying really, really, really hard to really get it right this time, to really do the right thing this time, we still sin. We still keep sinning. And while we work hard every day to try to clear out that, that toxic lake separating you from God, every night giant dump trucks just put more and more sewage in than you pulled out that day. You can never even make a dent in it. It's hopeless. You can try and you can burn yourself out trying and become bitter and angry and lost like I was. But when we understand grace, when we come to understand that we don't have to try to please God to fix what separates us from him, and instead, we, we can trust God with who he says he is and who he says we are and begin to grow into 
that identity. So who does God say he is? A loving father who runs out to meet us in the midst of our betrayal and sinning against him. A God who doesn't ask us to get ourselves together before he'll love us. A God that runs after us and meets us in our sin. As Ephesians 2 uh, puts it, uh, God doesn't, didn't lose his temper and do away with the whole lot of us. Instead, immense in mercy and with incredible love, he embraced us. He took our sin dead lives and made us alive in Christ. And when God makes you alive in Christ, this is what he says about you. This is from Second uh, Corinthians 5. If anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him, we might become the righteousness of God. If you follow Jesus, you are a new creation. You have been made new. You have been fused with Christ, which is as hard to explain as it sounds. And as as mystical and mind blowing as it sounds, you don't have to try to change yourself. You don't have to beg God to change you. If you follow Jesus, you are already changed. You have been given the righteousness of Christ. Who God says you are is righteous because of his great love for you in the act of ultimate grace. He took all your sin past, present and future and did away with it. And in his place, he gave you his own righteousness. That's, this is who you are. This is the identity that God calls you to live out of, not disappointments, deeply loved children who are righteous. And yeah, we, we still sin. We still mess up. You don't need me to tell you that, but our sins do not separate us from God. Instead, you can now actually do something about them because you have God working with and for you on your sin. This is a process that we call sanctification. It's God and you working on your sin together. Your job is to trust God with your sin, to live out of who he says you are, righteous, to grow into who God created you to be, drenched in grace as a response to being a new creation, not to work toward becoming a new creation. You already are. We do, we do these things. We, we, we strive to grow. We are intentional about growth because God loves us, not because we want to earn God's love. I never heard this until I was sitting in an office of an addiction counselor that I, I eventually sought out as a last ditch effort when, when uh, finally my life came to a place where uh, I could not do anything else but seek help. And how I met this counselor is a crazy, fantastical story that I will tell you all some other time. But when I finally understood that God wasn't disappointed in me, and when I understood that he loved me so deeply that he took all my sin and shame so that I would never be separated from him. When I finally understood this, this insane thing called grace, these addictions that I had been dealing with, these, these wounds that I've been carrying for years didn't stand a chance. They lost all their power and, and uh, God's grace changed my life. And I grew like I have never grown before. It changed how I view God. Uh, I found he wasn't, I found that he wasn't angry or disappointed in me and that I am exactly who he had in mind when he came up with the idea for me. You are exactly who God had in mind when he came up with the idea of you. 
And he loved me so deeply and, and is on my side and is continuing to mature and grow me. So it changed how I view God. It changed how I view myself. I could come to terms with my brokenness and vocalize and continue to be able to vocalize my brokenness. I could seek forgiveness from people when I wrong them because what I do doesn't define my identity anymore. Uh, because now I know my brokenness and my sin are not who I am. My identity is a righteous and beloved child of God, just like yours. My performance no longer affects my sense of self-worth or, or my sense of God's pleasure in me. It changed my view of God, changed my view of myself, and it changed my view of others. Because just like me, now other people's sin is not their identity. They're righteous. They're beloved children of God, which frees me to not hold things against people when they do uh, crappy things, because we all do crappy things. It allows me to be forgiving and to have grace for people and to love them for who they are and not what they do or don't do. Now, this didn't all happen overnight, right? We've been talking about growth takes grace and intention and time. It took many long, hard months and it's still continuing today. Um, but I physically felt things change inside of me. And I'd been living in such darkness and bitterness and, and numbness for so long that breaking out of it was like breathing for the first time. And it's been 15 years um, since sitting in that counselor's office and, and I'm still not done learning to live out of who God says I am. I'm still tempted to view God as being disappointed in me. I'm still tempted to try to earn his love and approval because it just makes more sense in my brain most days. It's easy to fall back into that way of thinking. And I know that I'm not alone in that. And that's why it's so important to be part of a community like this, where, where um, a community defined by grace, where people can remind you of who you really are and help pull you back away from trying to earn what is already yours. Our view of God and ourselves and, and others being rooted in grace is the most foundational and most essential part of following the way of Jesus. And therefore the most important part of what it takes to grow. Unless we understand God's grace to us until we understand who he is and who he says we are until our posture is one of trusting him and living out of the identity that he's given us. We can't, we can't actually follow Jesus. We, we can't grow. We can't mature. We will remain stagnant at best and bitter and angry at worst. So you will never grow if you don't accept God's grace and extend that grace to others. You will never grow until you come to believe that you have been made new. You are who God intended you to be, who he created you to be. You have to learn how to live into and, and grow into that identity. But until you believe that it is your identity, it won't happen. So are you, are you feeling stuck? Are you feeling stagnant? Are you caught in a cycle of recurring sin and shame that just feels like you're never going to get out of? Grace is the answer. Stop striving. Surrender. <laughs> Surrender to the truth that you are righteous, that you are who God created you to be. And let's figure out how to grow into that identity together. Will you pray with me? God, thank you for uh, the indescribable mystery of your love for us. 
God, thank you that you see us a long way off. People who have betrayed and wronged you and you run to meet us. God, thank you that you don't ask us to get, uh, to make ourselves right before you will (laughs) meet us, uh, before you will speak to us, before you will love us. God, thank you that you have already dealt with all our sin and all our shame because we can't. God, I pray that that truth would begin to sink into every person here and that we would all come to accept that you are, that you love us and that we are who you created us to be so that we can grow into that identity. God, we pray that we could be lights in a dark world. We pray for um, all the pain and turmoil uh, in Colorado Springs this weekend. And God, we pray for all the sickness that is running rampant through our community. God, we pray that you would um, allow us to bring uh, a felt sense of, of peace and healing to each other and to a broken world. God, we love you. Amen.